0: Um, I would meant to have Jeff read the whole text, so I'm going to read it before I jump in. (laughs) Before we jump in. So Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, Although I was eager to write to you about the common salvation, our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of God, the grace of our God, into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. I want to remind you. Although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterwards destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah. And the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority and blaspheme the glorious ones. But even when the, the archangel Michael, contending for, with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, "'The Lord rebuke you.' But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they, they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion.' They are reefs at your love feast, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding only themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up their foam of their shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, The seventh from Adam prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. This is God's holy word. So God's people have always been in danger from one degree or another from those outside. But the greatest danger has always been from within, from the false prophet who would rise up in their midst. Sometimes the greatest threats are those that are most subtle, and we don't really recognize them. We don't readily recognize them when they come along. Jude seeks to expose these false teachers, compelling the church to act. In the days of ancient Israel, we see how false prophets and wicked kings led the people astray into idolatry and all manner of evil, eventually bringing upon them God's judgment and captivity. From the very beginning, the church, uh, from the very beginning of the church, false teachers had wormed their way in to the fellowship and sought to deceive and divide the flock. And so it is to this day, error poses the greatest threat to the saints. Not those outside who can kill the body but can't kill the soul, but those in the church who twist the scripture to their own destruction and the detriment of others. With this in view, Jude exhorts the church to contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. Jesus is writing to a local church whom he knows and loves. Most likely this letter was meant to be passed around among local congregations, as most, if not all, were the New Testament letters and the Gospels. These letters and Gospels were copied by hand and, and passed around to churches through the centuries. The fact that this is written to a congregation is also important to keep in mind in understanding and uh, applying this letter. Our current church culture in America is, uh, tends towards a, an unbiblical individualism, a kind of me and Jesus attitude. We come to church to get our weekly dose of singing and sermon and, and head home. Or if that's too much trouble, we can pick up a sermon online. But Christ calls us to gather together as one people. Whoever we are, and wherever we're from, we are one body in Christ. So before before we proceed into the, the text in this sermon, let's pray together. Gracious Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who has given us all that we need, who has enlightened our minds, would you please work in us this morning that we might understand all that you have given us for life and godliness, that we might live for you, that we might live for one another, honoring you and loving one another as you have commanded us. Help us this morning to do this. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I've broken the section down, the verses 1 through 16, into three sections. Uh, the first section is Jude's greeting, verses 1 through 2. The second section is his reason for writing, verses 3 through 4. And the third one is false teachers in the church, verses 5 through 16. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in, beloved in God, the Father, and kept for Christ Jesus, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. This greeting sounds typical, but it's representing truths that undergird this letter. They run deep. And in which we see, we see these truths resurface, uh, in the doxology in verses 24 and 25 which we'll consider next Sunday. Jude calls himself a servant of Christ, a bondservant or a slave, making Jesus his master. This is significant in that Jude is a James, is the brother of James. James and Jude are the half-brothers of Jesus, the sons of Joseph and Mary, and they had two other brothers, Joseph and Simon and some sisters who are not named. This is very telling uh, concerning his conversion and faith in Christ because we're told in John 7, 5 that not even his own brothers believed in him. So Jude is coming humbly, a lowly servant of his master, Christ Jesus, not as a self-promoting celebrity. He didn't come out saying, Hey, I'm Jesus' half-brother, But he comes humbly, unlike the false teachers whom he's warning the church about. We are called, beloved, and kept. To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. The saints are called. The Bible refers to us in those terms. And when when this term is used of Christians, it's not referring to the general call of the gospel that goes out to all people. When the gospel is proclaimed, God is commanding all people to repent and believe. But it's not guaranteed that all will come to faith. The scriptures do tell us that those whom God has chosen will come to Christ. Jesus put it like this, all that the Father gives me will come to me. John 6.37. This is what we sometimes refer to as the irresistible call. It doesn't mean that God is forcing people against their will to come to him. It means that God overcomes the dead sinner's resistance to the gospel. It's also referred to as the effectual call. Meaning that the gospel has its intended effect in those God has chosen. God does this and does not violate our wills, but transforms our wills. The Holy Spirit makes us alive in Christ and with changed hearts and desire, we desire Christ. We are born of God by the Spirit through his word preached. We are beloved in the Father. God has settled his love upon all those who believe. Even before the world began. Why? Because he loves us. There's no conditions. No foreknowledge. In fact, God foresees all that will happen because he ordained all that will happen. If God chose me because of what he saw in the future, I don't think he would have chosen me. Just like our hymn that we sang today where he says... I have no uh, goodness or to, that God should desire, that God that to woo or desire. Nothing to draw God to me. There's nothing in us that God foresees. He just sets his love upon us. He's foreknown us. And um, Steve Lawson puts it like this, which I find really helpful. He says, foreknew can be understood as those he foreloved. The word no is often used to describe the most intimate of human relationships, especially between husband and wife. So this love with which God loves us is an exclusive love. It is a redemptive love. It is a sanctifying love and a preserving love. It is a love he has had for his people even before he created the world. So let us rejoice in this. Rejoice in the Lord who loves us in such a way. And we are kept for Christ because we are called, because we are beloved in God the Father. We are kept for Jesus Christ. So I want to consider again what Jesus says in John chapter 6. A few more verses. John 637 through 40, and just some context, Jesus has just performed this incredible miracle by feeding 5,000 men in addition to however many women and children were there using only five loaves of bread and two fish. And he preaches a sermon and he uses the figure of, of bread to describe himself. He says he's the bread of life, the bread from heaven, like the manna that God provided the people of Israel in the wilderness. By it, God kept them from starving to death in the wilderness where there was no food. What God did back then was meant to point us to Christ, who is the perfect provision to save and keep his people in the wilderness of this fallen world. Until we reach the ultimate promised land, the new heavens and the new earth. So let's listen to what Jesus said and notice his emphasis on the word "will." It's used seven times in this passage. It's used of the will of God. It's used of you know the Father's will, Christ's will, but it's also used to indicate that the the definite surety that what the Father. And the son are doing will take place. All that the father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. You get that? That's the Father's will that Christ loses none of us. He will keep us. For this is the will of my Father. Now he reiterates it to emphasize it. For this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. This is hope for all who believe. Our Lord has you firmly in his grasp. He will keep you. He will never let you go. We are kept through every trial, every affliction, every disease, every temptation, every sin. God calls, loves, and keeps his people. So we're here every Sunday morning, not merely to hear a sermon, sing some hymns, and pray our prayers. We're here to be called, loved, and kept, as Jude puts it, in union with Christ and with one another, singing our praises to God, offering up our prayers, exalting Christ, and beholding his glory in the word preached, and coming as one to the Lord's table. Verse 2, may mercy and peace and love be multiplied unto you. We're under God's mercy, not his justice. Mercy means that he is treating us not as we deserve, but as Christ deserves because we're in him. We have peace, not necessarily a peaceful feeling, but we have peace with God. The enmity that once separated us from God has been taken away in Christ's sacrifice so that in Christ there is no condemnation, no wrath, but the love of a compassionate Father. And we have this love in our hearts. Our trust and desire for Him give evidence to that. And we are growing and maturing in all the things as one people. We now move into to Jude's reason for writing this command, this letter. Beloved, Although I was eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered for the saints first three. Jude wanted to write to them about our common salvation, the salvation we share in Christ. It's always good to consider what God has done, his glorious redemptive redemption, his great power. Sovereignty and faithfulness to accomplish all he has promised to do in his people. And we love to talk about these things. And we're, it enriches us, it strengthens us, and encourages us in our faith. But something was looming overhead and casting its shadow, as it were, threatening the church. Something so urgent that he felt compelled to forego his intended topic. And urge urged them to contend for the faith. He wanted to prepare them to be on their guard not only for their own well-being but for the well-being of their brothers and sisters. The church is to contend to strive together to fight the good fight to keep one another safe from the false teachers that threaten the church. Together we're to contend for the faith the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. So what is the faith? It is the teaching, the revelation of God, of all that he has given us through his apostles and prophets, the gospel message of who God is and all that he has done to save us from our sin. Now we know the Bible is not composed in a list of doctrines and that are just neatly laid out, but it does teach us all we need to know for salvation and life. It is important that we see the faith, this body of doctrine, has been given to us. No one made it up. It came to us from the very mouth of God. It has never changed, and it will never change. It is in its final form, and it will never be lost. Jesus said, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And in Isaiah... He writes, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. So, what we have here in the word of God stands fast and it stands sure, and it's not anything that we made up, but God gave it to us. And so, we have this command to contend for it earnestly. When we gather every Sunday, we are, in a very real and powerful way, contending for the faith. We're contending for one another. That's why God commands us not to forsake the gathering of the church. <clears throat> he tells us, he commands us in Hebrews 10, 24, and 25. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another... And all the more as you see the day drawing near. And this is how we contend, how we fight, and how we strive for this faith. We gather to encourage one another in the faith. And we can't do that if we're not here. If we fall in the habit of not gathering with God's people, we're missing the primary means of grace that God has provided for us to mature and to faithfully run this race until he comes. This means of grace is kind of a package deal. It is all of us, God's people. Nothing else will do, no matter how, how good, whatever else that we, that we do, all the good things that we do outside of this, nothing, none of them is sufficient to replace this gathering. This, this gathering of God's people on Sunday morning. So why do we need to contend? Verse 4, he says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. These false teachers, they creep in unnoticed. They don't, they don't stand out for what they are. It's not, not readily obvious in most cases. They don't come in wearing a t-shirt that says, Jesus is not God. They're subtle, like the serpent. It's hard to pin them down on what they really believe. He says they twist the scriptures to their own destruction. Jude says they pervert, they distort or twist the grace of God. Making it a a pass to live how they please, because after all, we're under grace. You can almost hear the hiss of the serpent in that. They end up denying God by their subtle, gradual, almost imperceptible misuse of the scriptures. They may say they believe the Bible, but what, they, what do they believe that it actually teaches? That's the why, reason why the church has creeds and confessions. Because it's, uh, it's so hard to nail down these false teachers on what they really believe. They're so ambiguous and so slippery. So in the early centuries of the church and, and even on into the during the time of the Reformation, we, the church found it necessary to put down these creeds, what we believe that the scripture teaches, so they could, one, unify the church, make it very clear what scripture teaches, and then they could go to the false teachers and say, Do you believe this? And if they were honest, they'd have to say no. And that's one of the reasons why we're a confessional church. We not only have a statement of faith that affirms the basics, but we also have a confession which goes into much greater detail to precision about what we believe the Word of God teaches. So we're dealing with those who would, if they could, destroy the flock. Which is why we need to be so diligent in contending for the faith. Section 3, false teachers in the church, verses 5 through 16. First, we need to understand, when we're talking about false teachers, we're not talking about members in the church. We're not talking about those who just simply don't have a good understanding of what the scripture contains and teaches. We know that the fall has our intellect. So we don't understand things as well as, as we could. Um, it doesn 't mean that we we don 't understand or we can 't know what Scripture teaches, but it just means that when we approach the Word of God, we need to come humbly and prayerfully, depending not just on ourselves but on on the church as a whole and what she has learned over the centuries like there 's many many great and wise teachers throughout the history of the church, and so We have how what they understood, and so we can check ourselves against them. So I've broken down. There's three sections. I see three sections in these remaining verses. The first one I call a certainty of judgment, verses 5 through 7. The second one I'm calling a vivid picture, verses 8 through 13. And the third one... Spoken of, of in ages past, verses 14 through 16. A certainty of judgment. This is more of a, an assurance to the saints than a warning to false teachers. We see that judgment is not withheld from those who sinned in the past. And Jude gives three examples. The first one is the Israelites of the Exodus. He says in verse 5, Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward, destroyed those who did not believe. Just because you were descended from Jacob and were the physical progeny of Abraham didn't mean you were a child of God. No more than children of godly parents are automatically saved. They, of course, enjoyed some of the benefits with the rest of the congregation, but they did not believe. They did not have saving faith, so they perished. Salvation has always been by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. To be sure, the church in the Old Testament did not have as much information as we do today with the writings of the apostles in the New Testament. But God did promise to send a Savior. And he provided everything that his people needed to follow him, to trust him. And he gave them the sacrifices, everything that pointed to Christ and his saving work. And so in the same way that we are saved today, they also were saved by faith in Christ. The angels who rebelled, verse 6. The angels who, he says, the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. God's punished, God brought punishment upon the angels, now what we call demons, when they rebelled. God doesn't tell us a lot about what happened, but we know the judgment was swift indefinite. The cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, verse 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. I'm sure most of us know the story from Genesis 18 and 19. The wickedness of these cities rose up and God destroyed these cities in judgment for their sins. Only Lot and his family were saved. So, all of these serve an example of God's just, justice, that his justice that of, the, of these false teachers is certain. And so, he wants the church to understand that he is going to take care of business. It is God's sovereign prerogative to send or withhold judgment upon whoever and whenever he chooses. But be certain of this, all sins will come to judgment. Just Just as God was sure to punish these false teachers for their sins, because God has a real hatred for false teaching and those who would try to lead his children astray, Jesus said it would be better to have a millstone tied around your neck and be thrown in the midst of the sea than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. God wants us to know that, he, that the acts of wicked people are not out of his control. He knows all that is said and done and every thought. No sin, not even the least, will go unpunished. But he will certainly save us. He will save his people through all of it. Verses 8 through 13, Jude paints for us a very vivid picture of what these false teachers are like. And this is how God sees them. We don't don't see it necessarily from the outside. We don't look at these people and say, you know, I don't see anybody who fits this description. But God, but consider God's list of accusations in Romans chapter 3. Verses 10 through 18. It sounds like thunder from Sinai. He says, no one is righteous, not even one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. And he goes on through this litany. And he just nails humanity to the wall. So it's kind of the same thing here in Jude. God is going after these false teachers that are trying to lead his people astray. And so he knows. He knows the corruption that is on the inside, the sin that that is concealed, that that we don't necessarily see. So he wants to expose them. He wants to shock us into action to contend for the faith. These words, these are the words of the Lord who sees perfectly. Our glorious God who sees sin for what it truly is. God tells us the truth, not to make us feel bad, but to wake us up from our self-righteous slumber. He doesn't want us to look at false teachers and say, oh, I'm sure they mean well. He wants us to be acutely aware, how, aware of how evil sin is, especially false teaching and those who spread its venom. So let's, let's read verse 8. He says, In like manner, these people also were relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. And this is reminiscent, these dreamers, it's reminiscent of how false prophets were characterizing in the Old Testament. Like in Deuteronomy 13, 2 and 3, God said, if someone says, let's go after other gods, let's serve them. He says, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet, or the words of that dreamer of dreams. The greatest danger to the nation of Israel was is not the enemy outside the church, but the enemy inside the church. And so it was in the early church, and even today. They have no regard for God or man, only what suits their own desires. They blaspheme the glorious ones, Jude says. But even when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment. But said, The Lord rebuke you. This is um, a reference to an ancient text called the Assumption of Moses. There's another one called the Prophecy of Enoch or the Book of Enoch that he quotes from, and it's not in the Bible, so don't go searching for it. But it was familiar to the people of his time, and Jude uses it as an example. So we're told. That the archangel would not even speak a blasphemous word against the devil. And what a contrast. He draws this contrast between we have the archangel Michael and we've got these false teachers. And these false teachers are just running their mouth. But not even the archangel Michael would speak a blasphemous word against the devil. He held his tongue. And said, the Lord rebuke you. Just like, like, but these people blaspheme all that they do not understand. and And they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Verse 10. Just like wild animals are instinctively driven by hunger and the instinct of survival. So these false teachers are out to satisfy their own lusts. Paul said their God is their belly in Philippians 3.19. All they do is driven by carnal appetite, leading them headlong into that which will destroy them. Verse 11. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. So we got three people referenced in here, Cain, Balaam, and Korah. The first one, Cain, He says they're like Cain. Cain hated his brother Abel because he was righteous and in hatred he murdered his own brother. That's in Genesis chapter 4. And John elaborates on that in 1 John 3.12. He says they're like Balaam. They love money more than the truth. Doing anything to gain it even drawing the Israelites into sexual immorality and idolatry with the Moabites. That's from Numbers 20, uh, 22 through 24, and you may not be familiar with the story, but in the Exodus, they they were on the border of the promised land, and they were next to the king of Moab, saw all these people and he knew that they were too powerful for him, and so he hired this prophet, he wasn't a prophet of God, he was just a prophet of whatever God they had, and they they um, he tried to hire him to curse Israel and offered him all kinds of money, riches and honor and so in the same way these false teachers are driven by their their lust for riches and the last one korah, his rebellion against Moses in numbers sixteen through seventeen. You know, if you haven't read Numbers, you really got to read it. I mean, there's more than just a bunch of genealogy, it's, 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 there's a lot of good stuff going on in there. Um, but Korah stirred up a rebellion against Moses and Aaron and seeking to usurp their authority established by God. And in the same way, these false teachers seek to undermine those in authority by grumbling and slander and gossip. So, by the way, God judged Korah. Um, the earth swallowed him up. And the 250 other leaders that joined in with Korah, uh, fire came out from the, uh, from the altar and consumed them. So God is not necessarily slow to judgment. He certainly will judge these people who trouble the church. And that's what, that's what Jude wants the church to understand. Verses 12 through 13, he says, uh, he talks about the fact that the real danger and nature of these false teachers is not obvious. He says, they are hidden wreaths at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. And the list goes on. Jude wants us to know, he wants us to see who and what these false teachers really are. You know Jesus paints that picture for us of the Pharisees, where he says they're like whitewashed tombs. They look really good and clean on the outside, but they're they're filled with rotting bodies. The corruption we can't see it from the outside, and that's what he wants us to see. They are hidden reefs. These false teachers are in the church and join the fellowship with the saints. But like rocks below the surface of the water, they're waiting to sink unwary ships. These false teachers, they seek to destroy the lives of God's flock. They're without fear. They think they're getting away with it. They think they can just slip in, do their thing, get what they want. And, And many times they do. But God will judge them, bring them to judgment. They're self serving shepherds who feed only themselves. In contrast, our Lord, He is the good shepherd who cares for His flock, guiding, feeding, protecting. But these men, masquerading as shepherds, use the flock for their own evil gain. They're waterless clouds. They appear to have the promise of rain and refreshment, but are empty swept along by their corruption and their selfish desires. They're fruitless trees, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead uprooted. They produce no harvest of righteousness, no fruit of the spirit. they have nothing to feed others. doesn't matter how good they sound, they're usually pretty slick, but they have nothing. It's all junk food. Or They're wild ways of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame. The sea in scripture is often used as a metaphor in Hebrew poetry for chaos. And these men, these, their lives, ordered by the flesh, in total disregard for the commands of God. Their sin, like the foam cast up by waves, will eventually be seen by all wandering stars for whom utter darkness has been reserved forever. What a picture. Eternal punishment awaits them for they have lived their lives wandering aimlessly pursuing their sin and not the good things of God that he has offered to all in the gospel. They will be cast into outer darkness away from the glory of the Lord and all his holy angels and the blessed fellowship of the redeemed to suffer all they deserve for their crimes against the holy God. And so it will be for all who have loved sin and hated righteousness. These false teachers were spoken of in ages past. Verses 14 through 16. The Lord comes to execute judgment. It was about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all ungodly of all the deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against them, him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. The fact that God foretold these things is evidence of his sovereignty. He knows the future, because he sovereignly ordains the future. Not because he has a really good crystal ball or something like that. Okay, It's not just mere foreknowledge. But he wrote the book. Before one day came to be as it were. This fact of God's sovereignty should be a great comfort to us. The Lord's holy... Righteous and just, and he will not let the wicked go unpunished. He is in absolute control, and yet he does not violate the will of any man, woman, or child. How does he do this? I don't know. He doesn't explain it to us in Scripture, but he says that he does. Um, But he demonstrates it throughout his word. We see these things, how God... And just lead people Put people in his positions We see that uh, We see that Pharaoh was raised up for this very purpose That he might show His glory In him, his power, his might All he had to do with Pharaoh Was just put him in a position of absolute power It's like water We know it flows downhill So all we have to do Is just make a way for it to go And it's going to do what it does By its own nature And so does fallen man. So these, Jude says that they follow their own sinful desires. And we do, we know that we do what we do because of what we desire to do. And so it is with these false teachers. They stir up division and ill will in the congregation. They claim to speak for God, but they only debase him. And making much of themselves, they seek to manipulate others for their own gain. So all the ungodly, those who mock our holy God, who do not worship him with reverence and awe like he deserves, who have loved a lie and rejected the truth, will one day stand before him and be judged in perfect truth, wisdom, wisdom, And righteousness. There will be no mercy for them, only justice. For mercy is in Christ alone, the very one whom they have rejected and scorned. I want to wrap this up with something that the Apostle Paul said in his farewell to the Ephesian elders. It's in Acts 20, beginning in verse 28. He, uh, he, he was addressing elders of the church, but there's much in this that applies to everyone, and it fits well with what Jude has told us here about who we are and why we're here and what we're called to do. Paul says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. We must keep ourselves in the love of God and encourage those around us to do the same. He says, In which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the flock of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So we who have believed have been purchased by the blood of Christ, the precious blood of Christ, As Jude put it, we are called, beloved, and kept. So look around you. Consider your brothers and sisters in Christ and how precious they are. How eager we should be to attend our gathering, this gathering, to love and encourage each other as we worship our King. And here's the reason why we need to contend to fight for the faith and to fight for one another. Paul says, "I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own cells will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them." And then he says in verse thirty-two, "And now I commend you to you. I, now I commend you to God, and to the word of His grace, which is able to build you up." And give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So these wolves, false teachers. And they come, they will not spare the flock. So there's a real danger here that we can't disregard, we can't ignore. So let us come together every Sunday to be built up in the word of his grace. So we might be strengthened to contend earnestly for the faith together as God's holy, blood bought people.